Podcast Network. We don't have a formula yet of who's going to be doing what, but everyone recognizes that we're following this thing till the end. We have to see where it goes. This is the Extra Hot Grade Podcast, episode 105 for the week of May 28th, 2018. Wow. <laughs> I am podcast trying as hard as to look like a grown-up Harry Potter, David T. Cole. And I'm here with <laughs> exasperated bureau chief, Sarah D. Bunting. Don't tweet that. Oh, man. Nut graph nut, Tara Ariano. Delicious. And freelance hellraiser, Mo Ryan. I'm mad. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another all-new episode of Extra Hot Great. Uh, we are joined this week by Freelance Hellraiser and uh, star of the Star Trek draft, Mo Ryan. Welcome back, hey. Mo. Such Yay! a fond memory for me. <laughs> I still contend that I made all the right choices and my team is perfect. So There were no winners <laughs> in the Star there. Trek uh, draft, except there was, and it was me. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that I could uh, unearth that old story and um, pick <laughs> at that scab. Uh, we are actually here to talk about the creation of stories at uh, the Paper of Record, the New York Times, as covered by Showtime's new four-part documentary series, The Fourth Estate. Uh, it is directed by Liz Garbus, who has done some of my favorite TV documentaries in the past, and my husband was uh, walking around referring to this show as there's something wrong with all the president's men. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, uh, it is, and yay, yay, Dan, good job. Uh, but it is about um, the coverage of the first year of Trump's presidency and not just Trumpy stuff, but uh, other big stories that occurred in that year. Um, I have watched all four episodes. Uh, it is Definitely, it definitely hits that processy sweet spot um, for me. And Liz Garbus is an expert uh, assembler, which sounds like faint praise, but for someone who watches as much non-fic TV as I do, is actually not. She knows build, um, and she's very good at documentary pacing. And I really enjoyed it while also finding it extremely frustrating to revisit some of these um some of these events in uh recent american history as a progressive it was just like oh god like bannon really we're we're going that close on on bannon could we maybe pull back <laughs> camera 2 please if he's not going to pop that thing um mo what did you think of what did you think of the build of it and also how did you feel about revisiting some of these stories in documentary form um, to some degree, I think actually this was in my reviews. Um, it felt a little bit like a dutiful recap, not like an inspired recap. It was just like, remember that one time when Scaramucci was a thing for like, <laughs> two days? And so I, I was really, you know, it's, it was one of those reviews that was tough to write because, you know, I believe in the mission of journalism. Obviously, I think that the New York Times often does exemplary journalism. And yet, you know, as with anything that, you know, can be critiqued to you can love something and critique it, you know, in a fairly rigorous fashion. Um, so for me, what was hard was pulling apart. What is this show? What is this documentary? 
highlighting or showing about the New York Times that frustrates me and what's just frustrating about the documentary. And so those are two different things. I think overall, I, I think it's really hard to feel like it was a complete work. And obviously, you know, if you're covering an entire news organization for a year with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of employees, I'm not asking for it to be like fly on the wall of every single person in a rumpled button down shirt. Cause that would be excruciating because <laughs> there are so many of them and they're <laughs> mostly white. Um, so, you know, I just felt like why not die? I, I felt like it was, needed to be either a lot longer or a lot shorter. And I mm. just couldn't decide which It's like either drill down on following around Maggie Haberman or, you know, maybe the investigations team in DC or what have you, or don't just give me, you know, 10 minutes of this person talking to Bannon, maybe give me more of, or even three minutes usually is what it is. So I found that as someone who's, you know, I want it, I want it to be something that makes people care about journalism for sure. And I feel like that was the point. But there were, tell me if you guys agree, there were points at me that it felt like a corporate rah-rah film that you would see on a company retreat. It was like for, so... Yeah. For sure. So in the bag, you know? I mean, <laughs> the fact that this thing was over four hours long and we get one scene of, you know, acknowledging the business facts of the situation of like the walkout of the copy editors, it's like that yes. was one scene. You know, Thank like, you, you. Can, how can you tell that story of 2017 and 2018 of journalism of the most successful, probably, newspaper in the country? And that's then you give such short shrift to the business realities of what's going on, uh, you mm -hmm. know, behind all these stories. I, I found that actually kind of shocking. Yeah, agreed. I just I found that it didn't go far enough and it, it felt like it was a lot of what and I think that like. While I respect the impulse to go cover the people who cover things that we all should care about or do care about, um, the way that news is gathered, it's not just that it's, you know, people staring at screens and drinking coffee, which is <laughs> not, you know, highly dynamic, but it's also, you know, uh, it's something that happens on Slack, on email, in Google Docs, in text chains, in phone calls that are not on screen. I mean, I think, I think that a lot of how it all comes together, it, it's just, just training a camera on somebody. I don't know that that's the way to do it. I mean, if, if you were to tell me that someone uh, like say Lawrence Wright had written a book about the first year of the New York times uh, in, in the age of Trump, I would have bought that book in a hot second, you know, mm -hmm. because I think that people would be more willing to talk about how the sausage is made. This is a very, very glancing view for the most part of how the sausage is made, but that can be of interest to people. And I don't know how many uh, of you guys saw the fourth episode, but I just thought that that one was on a different level. And it kind of, to me, felt like what they'd been wanting to do all along. They kind of got there more with that one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, we I watched that, it. It's it also inter interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult, like acknowledging just the difficulties of like, how do you sort of animate both literally and figuratively the process of news gathering um, that I think that that's something that without going into this, like, um, what's his name? Supersize me guy who tends to get a little Morgan, too, Morgan Spurlock. Yes, thank you. Who tends to get a little um, 
excessively cutesy and um, schoolhouse rock with the animations, but at <laughs> least there's like, at least there is that visual interest. And at least there is that, like, get one of the, I don't know, get the creator of Sherlock to sort of figure out how you get texts and mm-hmm. Slack and stuff on screen and make it part of the narrative. Because, Mo, I think you're exactly right that there's this, there's like a whole talking head about how the newsroom is not the same as it was in the Watergate era and they have to keep up with that. But then at the same time, they're just sort of pointing a camera at what people are doing like offline only. So (laughs) they're doing that so much. I wonder what's in that text. Well, (laughs) we'll never know. I guess it was important. And she's talking, you know, Maggie Hammerman's driving along talking to a source like, Oh, this is happening today. We don't know who that is. And there is an interesting story to be told. I think on, how do you maintain access to sources and do tough reporting that doesn't get answered, you know? And I think, uh, I, I really think that there's this thing that happens with people who work at the New York times and with other high profile. Look, I mean, as three of us are ladies who've been on the internet a long time, we know what it's like to feel attacked, but people, there is a mentality abroad sometimes, and sometimes you see it reflected from places like the New York Times. If all criticism is ex- if some criticism is extreme, then all criticism is invalid. No, mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. true at all. And I just feel like, wow, there's a story in the fact that every time there's a meeting, most of the people are white. There's two separate meetings. I didn't yeah. get into this in my review. There's at least two or three meetings, definitely two, where there are. I think it's majority men in the meeting, majority white people for sure. But there's two meetings in which there are women present. The men talk almost all the time. And like, this is a real thing that happens in the world. And it's almost like you get these tantalizing glimpses of things that just the the documentary just kind of speeds right by. I don't know. The the one thing I thought about the, the show as a whole is I kept on asking the question, like, why is this coming out now? Like we are one year into it and maybe it speaks to what Mo was saying originally. Like it seemed sort of half baked in the ways that you wanted it to be better. Like you wanted it to be either more of an indictment of news gathering in the age of Trump. Uh, if you're like left, very left-minded or sort of more <laughs> of a uh, fly on the wall peek at what's actually going on in the newsroom. And you don't really get right. either. Uh, one is circumstance of the real world. One is, you know, at the feet of the documentarians. But I, I, I think this might have been a better series if they sort of let it go on and sort of push mm-hmm. for better access. And maybe this is something that comes out next year. Like when when the credits came up, like the promise of the credits and the music and the tone of the credits is not evident in the show. Like yeah, that seemed like like two different vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it yes. was pretty rah rah e in the actual documentary, and the credits seemed to make me think that this was going to be something dirty, and it wasn't really dirty. It was actually pretty clean. Well, Trent mm-hmm. Reznor. Um, was anyone else frustrated by the fact that I mean, there is like sort of a semi focus on Maggie Haberman for a while, um, and then there are a couple of sequences in which reporters are shown uh, interviewing people in MAGA hats 
And I just felt that it it felt like between when all of this was filmed and now, mm-hmm. like as we record this, it's a Tuesday, but over the last couple of days, there's been kind of this nonstop hammering, at least on Twitter, of Maggie Haberman splitting hairs on the definition of lying. And yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a story you know. point in episode four, too, where they they sort of discuss like what how do we determine what rises to the level of something we can reasonably call a lie when everything is a lie. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. I, I, I empathize with that from the outside. But at the same time, it's like, you you know, I was explaining, telling Dave about Daniel Dale of the of the star of the Toronto Star, whose whole thing kind of is like keeping track of every lie and not letting any of them get by. And so that, yeah, that's, that was frustrating to me this weekend too, of course, with Maggie Haberman, who's like, since the time that this at least started filming, I'm sure has really lost a lot of her luster, Um, you know, probably still great, a great reporter, but at least on Twitter, like a less and less pleasant follow. I mean, you know, starting well before the White House Correspondents Dinner, but that was sort of where it started going downhill for her, where she should maybe also (laughs) have her Twitter account go dormant a la Glenn Thrush, although his didn't stay dormant either. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, there's one time. So I think I think it's it's sort of a microcosm, which I think it was meant to be of. Traditional journalism wasn't made for this kind of deliberate warping of reality, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. and in, tr- in truth. So I think it was an interesting time to be in a major league newsroom, but there's a, I won't, I won't name the reporter. Cause like, if you watch the whole thing, you'll find out, but there's one reporter who says, Oh, I don't vote because I don't want to have a dog in this hunt. And, yes. yeah. so, and I'm like, okay, but do you believe in the norms of a civilized society? Yeah. <laughs> like at yeah. some point, do you like, it, that's, I, I don't I just feel like there's this DC press pack mentality of like, well, we have to give both sides, which, you know, makes me want to like shove a spike into my head. And, you know, as a reporter, I've certainly been there and having to get the side of some, you know, whoever I'm covering and put that in the story and all that. But no matter what those views were, but, you know, I think at a certain point, the New York Times is it, it, it's I mean, maybe this is one way in which it's good. It does show it to be this kind of very slow moving battleship. And when I don't know that any organization is made for this flood the zone warp reality time. Yeah, um, I, I just don't know that she examined or delved into that nearly enough, mm-hmm. well, especially since the major thrust of it was them trying to uh, adapt to an online world and right. the online world that moves so fast is now even like it's hypercharged in an era where Trump is just tweeting, you know, random bullshit every morning. And right. they're not really reacting to that in a meaningful way. Like they're reacting to the speed of everything, but they're not reacting to the topsy turviness of it. And I don't think mm-hmm. they really do a good job challenging the New York times on that in this documentary. Yeah, I wish they'd spent more time. Like, I thought they gave a good sense of what it was like for some of these reporters to just be faced with, like, the chaos that Trump creates in terms of just your basic deadlines, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also the veritable torrent of material that would be like a 56-point headline in any other era, but it's like just the same volume of colluding 
horse shit every day. Spoiler on my political views, I guess. Um, but it's like, I wish they'd a just sat with that part of it more and mm-hmm. be been a little less willing to let the times do that like timesy thing it does and you've seen this in previous documentaries with the exception of the late great david carr cutting his eyes at the camera and being like whatever it's the times um of like being very sort of like performatively self inspecting about stuff like glenn thrush and then quite pleased with where they come out yeah on it and that meeting in that meeting where you know Dean is like, so how does everyone feel about this decision? Like, are you fucking kidding? You're the big boss. What are they going to say on exactly. a conference call that's being recorded by documentary cameras? Exactly. He should have <laughs> fired his grabby I, ass. Like, someone should have said, said that. I said that specifically in my review. No yeah. woman speaks up on that call. I mean, honestly, it was a dude who said, why didn't you fire him? And I'm not, I'm not making a case for either of those things right now. I'm just saying mm-hmm. people... You know, there's this thing that people say sometimes like, well, I guess if I'm pissing off all sides, I'm doing something right. Yeah. Or counterpoint, if you're pissing off all sides, maybe you're making a mistake. Right. Uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) the the, the times it's like almost like especially the times has this like this is clearly an attempt to open the doors, make people care about the times when, you know, quite, quite, you know, prominently sort of had this attitude of. We are the New York Times. We are going to come down from our mountaintop and deign to tell you what the news is. And so it's a very uncomfortable fit because do people scrutinize and criticize the Times, especially in a very heightened era, especially for certain things over and over? Yes. Could that be for valid reasons? I think the thing the thing about the New York Times is it's kind of like the two EPs of Game of Thrones. They have <laughs> changed. They have changed based on public pressure. Will they ever admit it? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I just don't need a whole other like. Please let us read you our like rehab journal process that followed Jason Blair. Like, not that that wasn't necessary, but I don't. I didn't I don't need to see you pulling on your big boy pants. Just mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. 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 What was exactly. frustrating to me too is that there was so little kind of I mean for all the introspection that was happening there was very little interrogation of like what stories get primacy. And I I of course grant part of that is the fire hose of bullshit that we are all <laughs> being sprayed with constantly. Yeah. But What's frustrating to me is that so much of this and so much of the coverage in the Times is focused on Russia, duh, and and, you know, related scandalous things. In episode four, we get up to Stormy Daniels, but, you know, they don't really get that far into it because it's, you know, it ends around a month ago. Almost exactly, I think. Like, I think the last the last dateline we see is mid-April, maybe. But but the the we get sort of glimpses through it of other stories that people are trying to do with regard to policy. Like in episode two, we spend a little bit of time with Eric Lipton where he's saying, I want to do a series about regulations that are being rescinded or changed or whatever. And and one of his editors in this meeting is like, it's very expected for the Times to do a series on that where Donald Trump is the villain. We don't want to be typecast. That was yeah, the word he but used, it's like, typecast. Exactly. But it's like, that's but, the objective reality. You don't, and and also, yeah. you don't want to be typecast as the New York Times? Right. Yeah. What would you like to be typecast as whole, instead? 
And that's the whole both sidesism that I like. Oh, I just actually now I just call it both sidesism because it's some kind of religion for certain people and powerful. Yeah. The both sidesism gets imposed in those middle layers of management. It's not, I mean, maybe Elizabeth Boomiller is doing it too. I think she sort of came up for the DC reporting structures. So there's that, but like there's this amorphous middle where people like that, I think the, the editor's name was Dean Murphy. You mm-hmm. don't see them. You don't see them interacting with reporters. You very rarely, they'll maybe have a sentence here or there, but the mindset of the people in middle management at the New York Times is where you get this thing where like, here's here's something I will say again, personal opinion. In the year of the election, Hillary Clinton's email server stuff was covered as much as breaking the norms of civil society again and again, 15 mm-hmm. times a day by Donald Trump. They were given equal weight. This is yeah. me as a subscriber. Right. This is just me as a human being saying these two things were given equal weight. And I think that that's an enormous blind spot for somewhere like the times. And I think that the people at the middle layers are probably, you know, to some degree following what the top editors want or to a great degree, but that's where that kind of insane imbalance happens. Yeah. And it's that kind of comment that, that guy made that makes it very apparent. But as, as we've been talking about, like, this documentary is not the one that's going to push back on that or really interrogate it. Right. But that's a blind spot. Again, that's a blind spot of its it's sort of it's it's of the documentary's portrayal of how much any kind of mainstream news source source like this is going to naturally be trying to preserve power, <laughs> despite mm-hmm. what journalism is supposed to be doing it for business reasons. Like one of the biggest things that the Times has been criticized for over the past year is the people that they're hiring for their opinion pages. And I get I get I, of course, I know this is about the reporting and not the opinion, but it's like that's a business decision, too. And that doesn't come up in this documentary at all. Like we don't see Brett Stevens names or like any oh. of the other crazy right wing people that when they get this this huge platform you know people who don't want to read about climate change denialism are canceling the subscriptions that they dutifully bought right after the election to support journalism you know what i mean like this is another yes. big line spot i felt it had also the the me too ladies are on screen for maybe what 10 seconds yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and then again the like i'm a roy jones supporter we got government funding but we'd still vote for trump because he's right cover government funding needs to be cut people like Hmm. like look at us not shaming these these uh stooges like okay good for you (laughs) yeah but the new york times just has like a really like the end of the the series for me was like such a blind spot on both sides I'll i'll just play the clip the day in and day out attacks on us that hurts us But this has happened in history during the civil rights movement in Vietnam. A lot of people have attacked news organizations like the New York Times, called them bad, evil, outside agitators. All I can say is those guys are gone and the New York Times is still here. This is just after, at least in the in the documentary they presented as just after the Pulitzer Prize reveal. The problem with that is for the New York Times to not really acknowledge that these people, as he says, is like they exist on a continuum. They never left. They were never vanquished. 
Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, there were half of America then, they're half of America now. And yeah. Like, death comes for us all. Good to point, I guess. Present yourself <laughs> as a warrior against this movement. And then you watch the rest of the documentary. You're like, well, <laughs> you know, did you really do that? <laughs> it's just like they really do seem to have a big blind spot here. And for the documentarians to present this without irony at the end of it as yes. the capper to getting the, the, uh, Pulitzer is like, wow like like what that was the end. Yeah. <laughs> they just like shot themselves in the yeah. foot it was like yeah i'm not convinced that uh the filmmakers weren't kind of trolling the executive editor throughout yeah. like he so seldom appeared in a good light maybe that's just us but it's like uh, ooh, <laughs> like i don't envy his position but i'm not entirely sure that that wasn't that that wasn't sort of intentionally letting him hoist himself with his own out of touch petard the, yeah, the piano I mean, music was really a lot though come on yeah come on, if man. he's trying to present himself as a revolutionary like we we do not really see that uh, that that's no. not that's not the story that i feel is being told to us or that is accurate either anyway i feel like it pretty much buys into the times as noble quest pretty mm -hmm. hardcore and yeah i, just, I think you're I right i just don't know that like it's there was just like there was an earlier sequence in the first episode where A.G. Selzberger's whatever Selzberger's is publisher publisher now. <laughs> there's like a whole brief segment where it's like we're talking to A.G. Selzberger and he's the new young Turk, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, well, as a family institution, we think in decades. And I'm like, if I was at a work retreat and they were literally showing this, you know, for like rah, rah team, we're great. I would be like, where's the yeah. alcohol? Yeah. Um, there's not, I mean, I'm not saying be cynical about the news, but I'm just saying that the times does not like a lot of journalism comes down on the side of both sides because it's an evasion. Yes. There are different kinds of stories and different approaches you can take, but at a certain point, are you pro the norms of a civil society that follows the rule of law or are you anti that? Right. Like, I feel like they don't want to actually have to say what they're about or what they believe in. As a democratic society, we feel like the role of the press is important and we will own this, this and this is our core values. OK, we'll just say it, just own it. But they just sort of always want to have the credit for what they do right and never really engage with what annoys people about and that. And they double yeah. down on the frustration by treating the, the absurdity of the current administration as journalistic sport, where yes. they're like, well, it certainly is a great time to be a journalist. This is crazy. I'm an adrenaline like, junkie. What a great story. Trump's about yeah. to, like, you know, destroy some other pillar of civilization. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like the fact that they take sort of some glee in it, you know, uh, uh, is disconcerting uh, for those that want their uh, reporting to have more teeth. It, it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like. They, some of them are in it for the right reasons. There's a compartmentalizing that happens that I guess I just sort of, it just, it, it just depends on where you are at as a human being. But um, there's a reporter, Jeremy Peters, and you see him like, oh, I've been covering Breitbart since like 2010 and I've known Bannon for a while and I wrote Andrew Breitbart's obit. And so he thinks I'm, a, you know, like I will take his... So you see him sitting down with him, talking to him, meeting him in a rally, all this kind of stuff. 
And you also see that he's a gay man and he's married and he, but then it's like minutes later, you see him kind of like shooting the breeze with Bannon about a book deal that he got to cover all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, I don't like, I guess people compartmentalize differently. I, I, I find that just to be so chill about being at a rally for Roy Moore Mm -hmm. and hanging with Bannon, these people just, they represent a threat to all of us, including, and as I would say, almost especially you, but yeah. I guess get that book deal. I mean, that was the, that was the thing about it, too, where he says in that segment, like we hear his voiceover saying, like, Bannon goes out on stage and calls this the press like the enemy of the people or whatever the fuck he says. And then he's like, and I was there as his invited guest. So it's like, OK, well, then what is your responsibility as a reporter? Like you know do you maybe not accept that invitation and again it comes back to the question of like what how how important is it to preserve your access above all else versus telling a story in a really adversarial way i mean well maybe that's where this documentary kind of ran into a like problem on a meta level right is that they didn't want to they weren't necessarily pushing Mm -hmm. where they could have because they did want that access mm-hmm. and maybe that That's was really the true. agreement. Yeah. But it, it it results in a different kind of story than if you were following like, you know, an independent all weekly or something else that doesn't have this much, this many established reporters who, as we said earlier, like a lot of the time we're just watching them sit at their desk waiting for a source to call them back or, you know, leak something to them, which is, you know, not a cinematic. All of that said, it was, it was fascinating to watch. I didn't regret watching it. I just, oh, same. I, I, I it it's impo- you have to go into it being very aware of like the stories that are specifically not being told to you as a viewer of this product that's all I mean which is true of everything I guess yeah I mean I think it's worthwhile in that like we've had a spirited discussion about it and mm-hmm. it was like sometimes frustrating is not bad like it's right. it's put together well it's just mm-hmm. like it can be disappointing but is that disappointing because of like the film itself, the construction of it, or is it disappointing because the subjects of it are behaving in ways that we feel are not up to snuff and they're not being, they're not being pushed on that. So, I mean, yeah. either way, I, I definitely was interested the whole time. Yep. Me too. I, I thought it really got better as it went, but it felt like that sort of Netflix drama that kind of wanders around for four episodes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, how about this? And you're like, yes, this pace is better. This feels like you're following things a little more deeply. It just was like a little bloated and all over the map. You know, sudden, so at certain points it, it clicks into focus, but just, just I'll, I'll just throw out one last comment because I'm sure we're probably wrapping up soon. But early on, Dean Beckay says, well, we just realized we weren't really in touch with America, and that makes me kind of like melt my brain because yeah. <laughs> what that yeah. is code for is that we were not in touch enough with the resentful white working class that went for Trump when, in fact, you know, there were a lot of people who voted other ways that you weren't in touch with and apparently do not care at all if you are still in touch with, you know, because the labor movement is rising in a huge way in this country and does not come are, up in this documentary know. at all. Uh, n- zero's teacher strikes are mentioned. They're, the working class as a whole, this whole canard that, you know, like, and I, I realized that maybe some of the stuff came out after the time frame of like when she was filming folks, but it's like, let's go visit, you know, the rural heartland 
the rural heartland is full of more than just, you know, lower middle class white people. There's yeah. all sorts of people out there. And I, again, I'm not saying that, tr- that the Times didn't do that, but the feature, you know, that at this point to see someone on a road trip visiting these people who voted for Trump, we've now had that piece in our face for a solid year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of I just was like that was one of the moments in the documentary where I was like, and stab me. Let me yeah. die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. From one modern tragedy to the next. Oh. Tara. <laughs> nice segue. Well, we are gathered here to mark the passing of someone who was very important to us, my DVR. This DVR, a direct TV genie, first came into our lives five years ago. We were living in Los Angeles when Time Warner abruptly stopped carrying the East Coast feeds for some of its cable networks. Wait to watch Mad Men at 10 p.m. Pacific? I would have rather died. DirecTV had East Coast feeds or all of its cable networks, so we switched. And the genie storage capacity was beyond anything I'd ever known, and I started filling it. Sometimes with stuff I knew in my heart of hearts, I was never going to be in the right mood to watch. But I loved the person Uh I thought I might eventually be when I would set the DVR to record an episode of Frontline that was two hours long, (laughs) entirely subtitled and extremely depressing. And sometimes I filled it with TV episodes I could easily access via one of the many streaming services I also pay for. Yes, the entire pre-revival series run of Roseanne was available on Amazon Prime, but I didn't have an Apple TV in my office. I had to record its hundreds of episodes when they aired in syndication to play when there was nothing else on. And I truly thought the genie and I would spend the rest of our lives together. I never planned for a future in which we wouldn't. But then... We rented a bright, sunny house in Austin. It's common areas, lousy with windows. So many, in fact, that there was pretty much only one wall against which to put our big TV so that we could arrange our living room furniture around it. And on the other side of that wall was a bathroom. No exterior wall meant we had to switch to wireless receivers. That's right. Switch. DirecTV would come install a wireless genie, but they would also take our old wired genie away and with it all the shows and movies that had filled it to 68% capacity. That actually estimate might be low. It's never easy (laughs) to say goodbye to a friend, but it's especially hard to part ways from one who's given so much, demanding nothing in return. In our five years together, my old genie granted all my wishes, all except my last wish that it transfer its memories to my new genie, but... I will treasure my memories of the good times we had. R.I.P. It is time to go around the dial. Tara, you're up first. Okay, well, I finally got to, because I was away from the DVR, and we got the the Apple TV from Hawaii that had the CW app. I was able to watch the last two episodes of Jane the Virgin, season four. Um, wow, what a great ending to the season. Mo, I know you watch it too, and it was, this was this was so good. Um, the way that they've covered Simara's cancer has been, it felt extremely true to me the whole way through. Um, she got a, a late in her uh, treatment cancer buddy played by the great Amy Brenneman. And of course she's a good friend to her and gives her weed brownies and then dies. Cause it's a very sad show sometimes. Um, and the other thing that I appreciate is that it does not idealize parenting at all. Um, Mateo, Jane and Raphael's son is a real shithead sometimes in the way that actual four or five, six year old kids are 
like when he doesn't listen and he knocks something over at the flea market and it costs $4,000. You have to pay the guy back for the clock that your stupid kid broke. Um, and also that he does need to learn to follow rules, uh, like not touching the stove. And I appreciate that it, it, because it's a multi-generational show and that's something that's built into its DNA, as it were, um, that they do also explore clashes between younger parents and older grandparents, which happens sometimes with Alba, Jane's grandmother and, um, and Jane and Raphael and how they choose to discipline Mateo or not, i.e. the grandma wants to spank and they don't and it's an issue. And But they, you know, it they, they don't just sweep it under the rug like it gets dealt with. Everybody's feelings are treated seriously. Um, and in Alba's case, you know, they, they let her sort of talk about how it's important to her to enforce the rules that she set because she feels like she's being kind of shunted off as she gets older. And that's, that felt very real to me too. And um, also Raphael at the end of the second last episode, getting invited to hang out with Jane and Alba in, in bed and just like sit and shoot the breeze. I thought was very sweet. Cause that's always been something that was just for the, the Via Nueva women. So I thought that was a huge breakthrough for his character in terms of the big soapy cliffhanger at the end of the finale. I mean, I don't know how they write this one they, themselves out of this one. Uh, I guess now, since it aired like two months ago, I can say that Michael is not dead, as we have thought he was for years now. Um, but uh, since this is going to be the final season, I assume that they have thought this through. And I trust them at this point, even with the soapier stuff that I find less interesting <laughs> to uh, to get themselves out of it and end and the series in a satisfying way. So great season four still a wonderful show i love it so much um and for my plug maureen ryan and i are going to be on a panel together at the atx festival uh it's next week now oh my god it's so soon (laughs) mo we have to we're gonna be debating (laughs) are you prepared so prepared. I mean, I will not definitely be prepping on the plane out there to Austin at all. I'll be super prepared before that. <laughs> no, me neither. I've, I've got it well in hand. I also have been invited uh, since the last time I brought up the festival. Uh, once again, the ATX Festival here in Austin, Texas. It's June 7th to 10th, I believe. I also am going to be moderating a panel about composing music for television featuring WG Snuffy Walden. And I'm freaking out about it because he's only a legend. Um, so if you're coming to ATX, make sure to look up uh, where both Maureen and I are. What, what other panels are you going to be on, Mo? I am super excited because I'm going to be um, moderating uh, One Day at a Time, which we will be revisiting in this podcast. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Well done, me. Um, (laughs) There's also uh, a a panel on fandom and, you know, kind of like how fan relationships relationships work in the age of social media. Uh, there's one, uh, Winona Earp, which, you know, again, I will be plugging on this podcast cause I have a like maximum two track mind. Um, <laughs> and there's one panel I'm excited about that'll be about power dynamics in Hollywood and how, you know, I actually think, you know, it's interesting to me when people are like, well, the me too era is just about like, blah, 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 like, you know, stringing people up and blah. And I'm like, you know, I think actually people have been fairly nuanced about how they describe, you know, situations and the continuum of behaviors and whatnot. But there's also an enormous complexity to power relationships at any workplace. But in Hollywood, they're especially bananas. So I think that'll be an interesting panel. Hopefully we'll see. 
Awesome. And also uh, my final Americans recap drops uh, as you hear this podcast if you listen to it the day it comes out that will drop tonight the very last one and the longest one that i've written in a real long time it's a big big episode so uh, i was very satisfied by it as we mentioned last week so check that out at previously.tv all right mo what do you got i am going to hype uh the bejeebus out of a double bill which has been one of my favorite double bills for a couple years now on sci-fi um sci-fi is obviously has lots of different shows but the double bill that i really like the most it consists of killjoys and winona earp it's coming back july 20th it used to be on a bill with a show called dark matter which i also watched because i will watch anything with a spaceship you could make literally <laughs> the world's ter most terrible show and i will watch it and i am of course referring referring to gene roddenberry's uh what was it something earth oh Destiny. planet earth Destination? Destination. It was it was very bad. It was very in the some show that I think Kevin Sorbo created. I I have no pride, no shame. Anyway, Dark Matter, which was a pretty good show, is no longer with us. But Winona Earp and Killjoys are, and I'm very very happy. I think that if you like escapist genre programming, these are shows that really um, kind of deliver on that front. And I think, you know, I've, I've recommended Winona Earp a lot. It definitely has some wobbles to get past early in its first season. I think it's purely worth it. It turns into a very, uh, very sort of Buffy-esque, uh, very, uh, well-paced narrative, especially the last like third of the season or so. And that's not to say that the first season is bad. I just think that they're trying to like figure out what they're good at. And it's a, there are moments that are very over the top and sometimes there is a much more, um, you know, granular emotional tone. So they, they, they figure out how to balance those things really well, I think in the first season. And then the second season, uh, and both, I think, uh, the first season is on Netflix. The second season will be joining it on Netflix, I believe, in early June. So you should have a really fun binge if you haven't seen either. The second season was just a whole bunch of fun. You know, a lot of times I think that the second season of a show is really that, like, you know, the first season's the shakedown cruise. The second season is like, okay, do they have this? To me, that was a case where they absolutely have it. And if you like the last like four or five episodes of season one, then you're just going to really, really enjoy season two. It's both shows are made in Canada for about four dollars per episode. And <laughs> Classic sci-fi shows, <laughs> exactly. Like, but they both have female showrunners. I think that that's very obvious. They um, like there's just an, a number of things that they don't do, and I think that's almost something I look look toward more these days. Like, what not just do you supply good characters and, you know, a fun kind of chronicle that's happening, but what, you know, what are you just avoiding? Because I'm just, I'm tired and I just don't have mental space for certain cliches. But um, Emily Andras is a really um, kick-ass showrunner. She's really aware. There's a very high profile um, two a couple of two women in the show uh, the show kind of came up right around in 2016 when a lot of, you know, barrier gaze tropes were being uh, decried, you know, quite rightly. And so it is a show in which people can be in danger and are in danger. But, you know, there's an awareness of how um, how important that relationship is to the queer community. Uh, the fandom is really nice in my experience. It's a bunch of like, you know, just really 
friendly, fun people that have never swarmed me for reasons that I found tiresome. So well done, <laughs> fandom. Um, and Killjoys, I mean, I feel like the fandom of Winona Earp, um, it's about, by the way, I should tell you what it's about. It's about a woman who's essentially a chosen one. She has a, uh, a special pistol that she uses to put down revenants that haunt this one particular town. It's called the Ghost River Triangle. The town is within that. And she is like the, the heir to Wyatt Earp. And so she has to kind of put down these revenants and there's this band of friends and lovers and associates and townsfolk that kind of band together around her. And so it's this crazy like horror Western shot on the, you know, the prairies of around Calgary. Every winter they shoot this show and everyone looks so cold. It's like Fargo, <laughs> but like, what if it was super fun? Um <laughs> So I enjoyed that premise a lot and the way they executed it is very fun. A lot of witty dialogue and, and sort of stuff like that. So uh, Killjoys is, I think, has a lower profile. The Winona Earp, I feel like you can't avoid knowing about it if you're on social media because the fans are very engaged. And I think Killjoys has engaged fans too, but it's never really quite broken through. Um, it's just a really good space show about space bounty hunters and it's very it's very political in that it's about like how these people in this one corner of space called the quad are being oppressed by these you know wealthy families that kind of call all the shots but it's one of my major life beliefs that just saying the word space bounty hunters can like lift your day and lift your spirit. So there's three main characters. There's Dutch who has kind of like this special destiny played by Hannah John Kamen. I think it's important and interesting and cool that this kick-ass space bounty hunter hero is a, is a black woman. So that's cool. Um, her two kind of uh, second in commands on her ship are two brothers and they goof around a lot and have fun and have crushes or go hang out in a bar where a lot of the rebels hang out. So it's very much got a kind of almost, uh, you know, it's almost like she's Han Solo and they're her <laughs> Chewbacca's or something like that. It's a lot of heists of the week and adventures of the week and, you know, crazy space pirate of the week. So I just really think that supplying a show with reasonably good character development, reasonably fun stories, and just quite good escapism is actually a lot harder than it looks. And I think too many grim, dark shows are just grim, dark and are boring and somehow get more prestigious, I don't know, shout outs in the media because <laughs> we're supposed to find them more interesting. But I don't. So um, I really like these two shows. They come back July 20th on uh, sci-fi. You don't necessarily you can watch Winona Earp the first two seasons on Netflix especially as of early June they'll both be there unfortunately Killjoys I think one of the things holding it back is there's not a streaming platform at the moment you can watch it on sci-fi's app which I will definitely not call garbage but I could <laughs> call it that but um which I, I will say it's not ideal to to watch it with all the ads and everything but if you were to say give yourself the gift of Killjoys or buy a couple and see if you like it and then buy the rest because you are going to binge on it forever. That would be not a terrible idea. <laughs> Earth Final Conflict was the show. That was it. Yes. And I, I, I did have the self-respect to not watch the whole thing, but I watched way too much of it. And by, by way too much, I mean more than five yeah, Also from Canada. So, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <yeah. laughs> uh, so we heard about um, your uh, ATX. Big anything else to plug? 
I've got a, a bunch of like other podcasts I was on. If you at all enjoy podcasts, which you probably do if you're listening to this one, I was on the Tom and Lorenzo podcast recently and that Ooh. was super fun. So go, go check them. Their podcast is super great and fun. And I enjoy that quite a bit. So I'm also allegedly writing a book. So like, you know, (laughs) decades from now, look for that in your bookstore. It's going to be about how television affected me as a woman, as a human and as a critic and why that matters. So we'll see. We'll see if I can actually pull that off. We'll see. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Since we're on the Showtime documentary tip, I'm going to talk about Love Means Zero, uh, which is a tennis pun. Uh, It tells the story of celebrated yet controversial tennis coach Nick Bollettieri and explores the cost of his all-consuming drive for greatness. Except it doesn't exactly do that. Um, This will air uh, June 23rd on Showtime, uh, nestled in between the French Open and Wimbledon. And it was an entertaining enough hour and a half visually that I sort of didn't really notice until the end how frustratingly thin it is. Uh, for even a four times a year tennis fan, it's disappointing how little tennis is in this, <laughs> uh, how little analysis of Bollettieri as a coach. Um, what it's really about is the surrogate father-son love story, which curdled uh, between Baltieri and Andre Agassi. And if you wonder why filmmaker Jason Cohn didn't just call it Nick and Andre, it's probably because Agassi declined to participate in the documentary at all. And that could be worked around. Uh, certainly Cohn tries. He gets interviews with Jim, number two son, Courier, and Carling Bassett, and other favorites and lesser lights out of the tennis academy. But there's nothing on Bollettieri's style of instruction. There's nothing on why Agassi invested so strongly in this uh, quasi-paternal relationship or why Bollettieri broke it off by FedEx letter. Uh, once that happens, it just kind of trails off to the end. Um, until Bollettieri reads an open letter from Agassi's memoir to Bollettieri and like cries a little bit. Um, we could have used, I don't know, even one line from someone theorizing on why Bollettieri might have kicked Kathleen Horvath out of the academy to focus on Carling Bassett. Or, I don't know, let's talk about how Carling Bassett ended up her tennis career or on the eating disorder she herself brings up that's not followed up on. I was looking around online while I was watching this all. I can't believe this topic was never even a short on 30 for 30 because it seems like a total natural. But after a few minutes, you realize that ESPN would have been like one half of your central narrative will not sit for you. Pitch rejected. (laughs) Um, Anyway, if you want to marvel at how disgusting everyone looked in the late 80s and early 90s (laughs) on the tennis court... It's a pretty good sit, but you'll be much more frustrated by what isn't there than by what is. Um, I do think that Cone is a good uh, assembler, uh, like I said uh, about Garbus before. Um, I think that he has a good 30 for 30 in him or a you know movie about something. Uh, there's just not enough to love mean zero to bother with it, I would say. Uh, it taught me that Carling Bassett is a person and not, as I had thought until this moment, a beer. So that's something. <laughs> I actually remember her name. I was a, I was a huge tennis nerd in the seventies and eighties, and I watched a ton of tennis. And the whole this is a fascinating topic to me, but it feels like they didn't 
really get all the way there. Uh, yeah, uh, there are 30 for 30s on tennis, not annoyingly the Martina and Chrissy one, but any of the 30 for 30s are a better use of one's time and should be available on the ESPN app. Um, for my plug, uh, our esteemed colleague, Linda Holmes, has invited me onto this week's pop culture happy hour to talk about law and order. <sighs> Thank God. I know. Finally, um, there will also be a lengthy sidebar by me and Linda uh, about SVU and oh, how good. it makes us want to uh, stab ourselves in the eye. Um how I'm going to get through that without swearing because pop culture happy hour <laughs> is a family program. I'm sure I don't know. I think the producer is probably going to get carpal tunnel pressing the mute button. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that should be uh, in your podcast apps this week. I will be on pop culture happy hour talking about law and order and things that make me actually happy. Yay. It is time for the canon. Mo Ryan is submitting this week as a prelude to her ATX moderating duties. Uh, <laughs> take it away, Mo. Hey, so uh, no pressure. I'm just uh, trying to formulate a, a canon entry that will sort of be on the level of this show, which this won't be. Let's just put that expectation to bed now. <laughs> um, one day at a time is a really, really good show. And Netflix gave us all a lot of um, anxiety earlier in the year when the show finished. It really, or I guess it dropped the whole season at once, but the whole second season was quite strong. The, se the season finale in particular was fantastic, I thought. And then they waited. There's, they, they, uh, they waited a long time. It took their sweet time in renewing the show, which they finally did. Thank goodness. Yeah. But it would have been a dagger to my heart in so many ways if uh, one day at a time the new version of the Norman Lear show from back in the day had not returned. It would have been a nightmare because here's a show essentially doing everything right. And I think, you know, sometimes Netflix really leans into its image as the disruptor and we do everything because we want to and we don't have to play by the rules. but. You know, the rules of television used to be that you were a good show that did everything right and then you got canceled. Uh, so <laughs> I wanted them to rewrite that script. Unfortunately, they did. And it's interesting. I was thinking about this uh, canon entry over the weekend and I was thinking it's unusual to want to canonize uh, an episode of a show that is still ongoing, a show that only has had two seasons those seasons have only had 13 episodes each. So we're not talking about, you know. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. 
but the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! a show that had even a hundred episodes so far, it's only had 26 in this episode in particular, the one that I want to nominate, uh, not yet is a really unusual structure and it's extremely unusual for this show and for multicam sitcoms for any sitcom. Really? I think it's got a very strange structure. So why this episode? Well, I think to me, it's a culmination of everything that we have learned about these characters And it's an incredibly beautiful, heart-wrenching, romantic, sad, and funny, deeply funny at times, payoff to two seasons of having watched this show and the script by uh, Mike Royce and Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the two showrunners, is just so beautifully nuanced and yet takes on these really heavy, difficult things. And so... One thing I want to say, if you're going to jump off this segment because you just don't care about comedies or you don't think this comedy is your jam, the reason I'll tell you it could be your jam is because I'm not really a huge fan of multicam sitcoms. I mean, I can be. I think in the main, they're just kind of generally done in a fairly lazy you know, way that's very predictable. The rhythms are very predictable and they can be very pleasingly, you know, familiar or they can just be kind of rote. And so I think a lot of times they're not really my cup of tea, but we've had some recently that have been outstanding. The Carmichael show was really good, had a short run, was kind of under the radar, but did a similar thing to a lot of the better comedies these days, which is take some social issues or a social issue and examine them from all perspective within that very familiar sitcom, you know, multicam sitcom format and have an intelligence and a perception a perception um, of, of what matters in these issues while not getting too heavy or too weighted down by these topics. So one day at a time does that. I think for the most part, it does that very adeptly. This really wasn't necessarily an issue Sh- uh, episode of the show. It was, uh, but it was. It had some familiar elements. It was essentially a series of monologues, and uh, it was also something. You know, some forms were employed that we're quite used to. Uh, you know, monologues themselves are not unfamiliar in, in in TV. And sometimes, you know, there was an episode of Underground last year that was just essentially a monologue by uh, Aisha Harris's character Harriet Tubman. So this is it's a break from how they normally do things. But the idea of a series of characters giving monologues is not all that foreign. And what I like about how they did it here was they made it to me like a like music. It was like a verse, chorus, verse structure. So you would have a character's monologues, but then you would get a break. You'd get a release from that. There would be, you know, a priest coming in and there would be a funny exorcist joke or there would be a nurse coming in and they would kind of rag on him and that would be funny. So the premise of the episode is that Lydia, uh, the grandmother of the family and the greatest 
character, one of the greatest characters on television <laughs> right now, played by the incredible Rita Moreno. Uh, she's in the hospital. She's had a procedure. She's in a coma. They don't know when she'll wake up. And the previous episode ended on a cliffhanger with her being ill. And so uh, this coma is kind of the premise for the episode. And, and kudos to Rita Moreno for going probably multiple days of shooting or at least one day of shooting, lying down in a hospital bed, looking like she was in a coma. That cannot have been easy. I know that it sounds like an easy job. It's really not because you have to give, you know, complete focus to that, to that person who's in the bed. Uh, that person in the bed has to maintain complete focus. Um, so it starts out with uh, each character goes in and has a little bit of alone time with her. And so the first one is Alex. And what I love about the structure of the episode and how they play it out is that for every character, the connection or the monologue is based on that relationship. So Alex and Lydia love to watch telenovelas. He does her nails. They talk about TV. He talks about the family going to church that day. So it's very much within the arena of how they relate to each other and their their special relationship. So then Dr. Berkowitz comes in and he's beautiful and wonderful and he makes, you know, this kind of lovely uh attempt to you know sort of just relate how much he cares about Lydia to her and how much he, you know, how much the connection between them matters. And it's very, very well done. I mean, th this cast is is incredible, and I, I I give up all props to them because I think as an actor, it's got to be really tough to go there and just kind of be naked in a sense. You're you're just out there by yourself. You're not re responding to the dialogue of others. It's not a group scene. It's just very, very much the spotlight is on each person. This is an episode that forewarned, it pulls on your heartstrings a lot, but I think it earns every single moment of that because, again, it's really based on the connections that people have with Lydia and also the performances in the writing are so good. So uh, when Elena comes in, she talks about how when she was, a, a, when she was younger, she actually stopped talking to Lydia in Spanish and it's the centerpiece of how she felt like that damaged their connection, how she has regrets for that. So we have a clip from that, I think. Except I screwed myself. Because I lost my Spanish. I lost my connection to you. Then last year it came and I was so worried to come out to you. And you surprised me with your acceptance and your love and your support. You even helped me get a girlfriend. <laughs> I know men love you, but you could crush it as a lesbian. <laughs> so now I feel stupid. Because all I want to do is talk to you. So that had me in tears. Uh, but again, they were really smart about how they paced this. And every so often a nurse uh, played by Tim Sharp would come in and there would be a joke about him. And so you would get these little moments of relief. And I think one of the things I like more than anything on television is when a show like stealth, you know, kind of has a stealth agenda that destroys me in a good way. And Schneider is very much the comic relief, even on a show where everybody is 
pretty funny. He's kind of this grown-up himbo character, a little bit of a man-child, a little bit oblivious, but he has a good heart. And when he comes in and talks about how important the Alvarez family was to him during his recovery, when he was trying to uh, go clean, that I didn't expect it to devastate me, but it totally did. And let's hear a little of that. After I got out of rehab, I started hanging around your apartment a lot more because it helped. Back then, it must have felt like you had this annoying, intrusive guy over. <laughs> Not like now. Because <laughs> now... You're my family. Did not expect Schneider to destroy me, but he totally did. And uh, again, like terrific performances. Everyone really brought their A game. It was it was incredible. And you know, I think one of the things the episode does best is get at the connections that bind people and how terrifying it can be to lose them. And so. Uh, Justina Machado is incredible on the show. She just is able to do every single thing comedically and dramatically that you would ask of her, but she brings the episode to a whole different level. When she goes in to talk to her mom, she actually, this is so smart. It's so good about, um, how parental child relationships actually work. She brings up something, something she was angry about how Lydia didn't support her when she was going off to enlist in the army. And she felt very rejected in that moment. And she kind of has all these emotions bubbling around rage, uh, you know, uh, memories that are both nostalgic in a good way and a bad way, but she's trying to cover up for her, deep, deep terror of losing her mom. But in the clip that we're about to play, you hear all of that emotion come out and it's just amazing. I'm not going to say goodbye. You hear me, mommy? Because I understand now why you didn't say goodbye to me when I went to the army because you were scared I wasn't coming back. And I forgive you. Because now I'm afraid. And I'm not going to say goodbye. But instead, what I'm going to say is this. You did a really good job being my mommy. Because of that, we're going to be okay. If you need to go, it's okay. Whew. So if you've ever lost anyone close to you, that scene probably left you in a puddle on the floor. And this is a tribute to the show's storytelling chops that I thought maybe they will kill off this character. I, I, I would have understood it on an intellectual level, I think it would have made sense. I I don't think it would have been a death just to shock people. I would have thought that they did it as um, 
Tara referenced earlier with Jane the Virgin, that there was going to be, I would have trusted they would have played that out in a way that was, you know, in, in line with their previous uh, writing and, and characterization patterns, you know? So I could have, I actually was, I screamed a little bit at my television when <laughs> there's a fantasy sequence, uh, again, something that's very familiar on television, you know, it's sort of a dream sequence um, we see Lydia out of the bed. She's dancing with Berto, who's come to collect her. And I thought maybe she's, this character's really gone. And I just, this has been a show for me that in a dark time, honestly, in our country, I watch it and I feel better about the world. I don't feel like they're ignoring the world, but I feel like, oh, if there are people like this in the world, then I feel a little bit better. And Lydia, Rita Moreno is having so much fun with this performance. It's absolutely infectious. And I would have missed that tremendously. But fortunately, um, we didn't have that happen. And she has a romantic, beautiful, sexy kind of interlude with her, uh, her husband who passed some time ago, who she still misses daily, hourly. So I feel like this episode really went around the, you know, just, it, it just went everywhere. It was grief. It was loss. It was terror. It was anger. It was comedy. It was absurdity. And then it, it ended up on romance and on hope. Um, because fortunately we did not lose Lydia. If we want to play that last clip. So mi amor. Is it time Not yet, mi vida. <laughs> and that audience was me screaming, yes. <laughs> so that's my nomination. An episode, half an hour of TV can make you feel this intensely when for two years it has had solid, empathic, witty, and truly insightful storytelling. I nominate One Day at a Time's episode not yet sarah why don't you go first okay um my feelings about one day at a time in general are uh on the record um the it's just very sitcom-y in the way that i don't tend to like with that said um so i don't tend to like sit with it or seek it out except if i'm asked to do so for this for extra hot grade. Uh, but whenever I do, uh, there is something about it that is very endearing. Um, but like also annoying, I mean, sort of just like family. So I have to give them credit for, um, getting that mix of like, Oh Jesus, with the standing back from your punchlines irritation that I feel, but also that uh, these characters and especially national treasure Rita Moreno. <laughs> um, and I can only imagine like every time one of these characters was giving her the speech, except for Alex of whom more in a moment, um, it was like, what? Like you have to go there as an actor and then national treasure Rita Moreno is just lying there, like listening to you. And it like, yeah. if you're on like take four, <laughs> you just like, I'm bullshit. Fuck this. I quit the show. Like it must've been extremely difficult, especially um, for Machado, who is not always my favorite, but I was extremely impressed with her performance in this uh, episode. And, you know, like you can see it coming, 
but and yet like the way that they get there is really uh it's really quite wonderful and cathartic which i think there's like it's not the most um delicate nuanced uh rendition of this situation in the world but that's okay uh i thought it was great i thought schneider's segment was great and i especially um thought that alex like this episode had me when he's like you know jesus said that to peter parker and then just makes the (laughs) hand gestures it was it was just so funny um elena continues to be an issue for me i don't know if it's the actor or the way she's written like i think that that character is um is like important and good to have but the actor is not quite good enough, I feel, um, compared to the rest of the cast. Um, but with that said, this this was like the this was a sitcom serving of comfort food in the best way. Um, and the not just the evident satisfaction that Moreno took in delivering the title line of the episode, but the audience is like burst of relief that this is how it was going even though you know come on (laughs) like you you live in the world and you figure they're probably not gonna they're probably not gonna kill her off but it it was it was great it was cathartic it was predictable but sometimes predictable is good uh and i really liked it and um was glad to revisit it like i said the show is not really for me but I always feel like welcomed back into it when I revisit it. So uh, good submission. And it was a nice one to watch. And I'm glad that I've seen it. Tara. Uh, I love the show. Um, and I thought it does this episode in particular does a lot of things. Well, I wasn't I wasn't convinced that they weren't going to kill her off. I thought they might because, you know, she's obviously as as Dr. Berkowitz puts it in this episode, she's one of the most alive people that any of us will ever see. And yet <laughs> She's a real old lady. Like I can see them. I I could imagine them trying to get ahead of like, you know, the possibility that she might die between seasons or between tapings or something. And just be like, let's just do this now. But they didn't. (laughs) Um, I, I, uh, I love the uh, Mo's analogy of like that. It's like verse chorus, the structure of the episode. Um, And uh, I also love Tim Sharp as nurse Wally. (laughs) (laughs) The the class. So hapless. Yes, but the clash between him and Penelope where he's like, did you know your mother's a nurse? Because she's told me 500 times and then he has to admit that he, you know, forgot the saline bag that he came in to change or whatever and is like <laughs> yeah. behind the curtain crying when when Elena has her bit with uh, Lydia because I also forgot that he was in there like that. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. That was really well done, I thought. Um, and of course, I agree. Justina Machado is perfection. My uh, my uh, I. I thought the Schneider thing was, I liked it less than Mo did. Uh, and the reveal of the snow globe, I was like, okay, that's, that's a little, yeah, that was a little cheesy. Um, and lighting all the lights, like there, you know, as when Penelope comes in, she says it's a fire hazard, but it's like, yeah, you can't do that shit in a hospital. Like, sorry, that's silly. Like it's cute. And it, it makes a nice visual moment and gives, you know, Penelope the line of like, Schneider literally built you a stage like it's true but you know it's also silly and but where they where this episode loses me is you know on the trust thing that we keep bringing up that they it's like they didn't trust the episode to work without actually having Lydia 
active in it. And and this is not a show that does fantasy dream sequences like this. And so when we get to her out of the bed in the great dress with her, you know, late husband and stuff, it's like, uh, I, it, it that's where it loses me. I just felt like it was it was reaching too much and it it got it got from from heartfelt to kind of corny for the sake of that moment where the audience explodes like i get it and it is a relief but at the same time i just wish that i wish that it had been allowed to stand with the other uh performers only especially since we haven't even talked about the coda after she does live is um she and schneider get to uh, are sworn in for their american citizenship <laughs> and and like it's kind of gets me back with like the family freaking out and singing you know doing reprise of like dolly <laughs> from the premiere to the point where the the uh, person administrating the ceremony has to be like there are other people <laughs> the last line of the season which is hilarious um but i just i i wish they hadn't done I wish they hadn't done the soul fantasy. Dave. I wouldn't have mind the fantasy as much. I understand what you're saying, but it's actually for me, it's the laugh track. And just like half an hour before the show, I had to email Mo. I said, when I clip the last track, do you want me to include the laugh track of the audience reacting to the not yet line or not? Cause I just wasn't sure if that was that. Cause for me, I kind of like, I kind of wish this show didn't have the audience track in it. I think it would be a better show for it. It is. They do film it in front of a live audience. I know That's they not do. A laugh track. But oh, I'm okay. just saying, like, I think it would be better if they didn't. Um, it, yeah, I think it would be less. That's one of the sitcom things that gets to me. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think, you know, maybe maybe the time has come just to, like, stop that completely. That That's my hot take. The audience reacting to it made it seem more like they were playing to the audience. You know, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that uh -huh. would have been quite as jarring if that wasn't there and i think like the show is quality and it could doesn't need that part um maybe you know it's just part of the sitcom that that's part of its legacy and they wanted to have that in there i, I guess the one moment i really felt close to schneider uh it doesn't necessarily seem canadian to me at all in the show as he's written um but the way he cannot do the stations of the cross is me I can never remember <laughs> what that is. The sign uh, of the cross. Or when you do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the other part that I thought was just like a little too much was people who crawl into bed with dying people um, as a sign of sorrow. Always kind of creeps me out. That might be my baggage. Um, but when um, when her daughter gets into bed with her and starts singing, I was like, all right, that might have been a little much for me. Uh, having the pauses for Tobolowski and the nurse and the priest to come in. You know, lets you catch your breath in between, you know, these poignant family moments. And I think, you know, for everybody who's lost somebody close to you, uh, the specter of losing somebody without being able to have a proper goodbye is sort of like the worst. Uh, you know, both my parents died. Like, I did not get to say goodbye. So that part of it where, like, she, uh, the, the daughter is, like, really kind of having a freak out moment before she just sort of collects herself felt pretty true to me and then she called into bed and then it didn't but uh beyond that I, <laughs> I, I really uh thought this was a good episode so with that let us put this to the official vote sarah d bunting what say you 
I think this does everything that this show does well, really well. And it worked on me. Maybe I'm just a sucker for uh, grandpas waiting around long after death for grandmas <laughs> to be ready because I feel that happened in my own family. But regardless of Sarah baggage, this is a yes for me. Good presentation. Thank you. All right. Tara Ariano. Well, I think because I love the show so much, I, I have different standards. So this this is this is not one of my favorites. So I'm going to vote nay, but it sounds like it probably does not matter. Yeah, I'm going to vote yes. I, I, I did enjoy it. And I oh. think like it stays true to the show while introducing new elements. I don't think the new elements are, are wildly outside of of what the show in my mind is allowed to do. So with that. That is One Day at a Time, Season 2, Episode 13, Not Yet. You are hereby inducted into the Extra Hot Great Game. I thought this was a democracy. But I guess this is some kind of <laughs> dictatorship where people are forced to vote. <laughs> Americans love a winner. Yeah. <laughs> And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. Time for winner and a loser of the week. Who is our winner? Uh, I have our winner. It's the Golden Girls, um, you know, now and every week. But uh, Ryan Reynolds sent a thank you video to Deadpool 2 attendees uh, in the form of the uh, like a montage of Deadpool 2 scenes cut into the style of sitcom credits and thank you for being a friend was playing over it um it's pretty funny to see like deadpool characters giving each other the finger in like hilarious freeze frame sitcom style uh while that song is playing um it brought me joy and we will link it in the show notes that's in keeping with his character he has some sexual uh attraction to b arthur in the comics ah yeah okay as do we all i suppose tara mm. Late breaking loser. Uh, first of all, side winner. The cast of Arrested Development no longer the uh, losers of the week because <laughs> while we were recording, all right. So here's what happened today. It's Tuesday as we record this. Roseanne decided today was the day to get up and tweet: Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ, meaning Valerie Jarrett, a former Obama aide. Uh, she apologized. Um, saying she shouldn't have made a joke about uh valerie jarrett's looks which like true but only kind of the point and then said she was going to leave twitter and then one hour ago as we're recording this we got a an email blast from the uh, chief of communications at abc from uh abc president channing dungy who writes roseanne's twitter statement is abhorrent repugnant repugnant and inconsistent with our values and we have decided to cancel her show famously already picked up for an 11th season like right after it premiered um and i on twitter this morning people were speculating that the action abc was going to take would be just be like well they'll probably just suspend her and it won't really make any difference because the show's not going to be back until next season anyway and this way they you know can have it both ways and <laughs> channing dungy's like nope fuck her that's it like how you decide this is the line <laughs> that you draw as opposed to the QAnon stuff or her past anti-Muslim sentiment or Pizzagate or whatever doesn't really matter whatever it took for this abomination to be canceled I am happy about it and wow what an idiot uh hope it was worth it Roseanne I wonder if she's still gonna throw a Halloween parties in her old haunt on uh, the <laughs> well we'll never know <laughs> I just don't understand how ABC didn't see this coming honestly exactly that's on them. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
I, and that, that's why I would love to know, like, I would love an oral history of like the decision making behind both bringing the show back and like today's events, because you have to know there were people on the executive level who were like, this never should have happened. I told you. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe they'll light her on fire and stick her up Tim Allen's ass. Girl can dream. <laughs> There's a tweet going around about a, a racist comment that she made about a black woman five years ago. So, yeah. I mean, how did you not think this was a thing? Mm-hmm. But I think that it was surprising they did this. I guess that's the time we're living in that they actually um, took action, which is yeah. not something that works are really great at when they're making a ton of money from somebody. Yep. Well, good for them. Good job. Yeah. Speaking about making tons of money from somebody, you don't know what time it is? <laughs> <laughs> it's good time. Oh, I somehow didn't carry over some of the stats from last week, so I am going from memory. I believe this is the sixth game time of the season. I think the season scores are Tara 3, Sarah 2, value guess none. Yeah. Okay, good. Correct. Today we are playing Not Quite Superheroes from Dan Casino, who earns himself an extra credit, redeemable for an extra hot great mini topic of his choosing. Thing writes, it may seem like there are two there are superhero TV shows, and there are, but maybe the problem is that there aren't enough of them interesting. In this game, we'll tell you the special powers or abilities of a superhero based on an existing character actor or show and you tell us the superhero name to make things a little easier each answer will end in man woman boy or girl or plural forms of those though so as an example if i told you she has the power to pull off adorkable bangs your answer would be new girl new girl is the superhero there are also hints for each one if you need them answer without a hint two points if you need a hint and you could get the answer after that Make sense? Yes. There are 33 questions today, and we have two equalizer opportunities during our score breaks. And, of course, we have a tiebreaker if we need it. Tara, steal meal situation, please. All righty. Sarah DeBunting has three steal meals. I have one steal meal. Value guests, I regret, are out of steal meals. Okay. Let's throw it to the person in control choosing initiative. Picky 3000. It will be first. We will start with valued guests. All right. Our order today, Mo, Tara, Sarah, are we ready to play Not Quite Superheroes? Yes. Here we go. Mo. Yes. He has the power to run a nonstop drug party to cover his guilt over killing Gale. He is... Uh... Wal... Oh, oh. You can answer Jesse for... Pinkman. Pinkman, Jesse Pinkman, <laughs> correct. Okay, sorry. How many points for that? That's two points. Two points two for points, an answer it. straight out of the gate. If you need a hint, and one point for the correct answer. Got it, got it, got it. Tara. Yes. She has the power to leave Brewster, New York, and find fame in the big city. She is... That girl? Nice. Correct. Tara. I mean, Sarah. He functions as a charisma vacuum making any role from Seattle murder detective to future body swap guy devoid of any charm. He is... He is Joel Kinnaman! Correct. (laughs) All right, everybody's got their points from the first question. Second question's coming up. He can give Adam Sandler a chance to sing all of his lines during Weekend Update. He is... 
Opera man. Opera man. Tara. Yep. She can somehow avoid seriously questioning her own privilege after several seasons behind bars. She is. <laughs> Piper Chapman? Correct. Chapman? Yes. Okay. Sarah, you must respect his authority. He is. Cartman! Mo, he has the power of both criminal and attorney. He is. Oh, I need a hint. AMC ongoing since 2015. Also, um, another show on AMC. Saul Goodman. Correct for one point. Tara. Mm-hmm. This British import heroine can balance her work as a high-end escort with her love life. Sometimes. She is... Uh, remember? Call girl? She is Secret Diary of a Call Girl. Yes, correct. Remember, it could be a character or show. Got it. Sarah, he can get a nickel every time someone plays the Simpsons theme song. He is... (laughs) He can get a nickel every time someone plays the Simpsons theme song. He is... (sighs) He is... Bartman? He is... Danny Elfman. The composer. Oh, yes, Elfman. Elfman. Good All question. Right. Well, he can make even a bachelor next door take an interest in his welfare. He is. Uh, hint. ABC 2014 to 2015. I don't know. I'm, st- I'm blanking. Sorry. Anybody? Mm-mm. That is uh, the TV show based on the film about a boy. Oh, oh that was NBC. Wow. NBC? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you might know him from his ability to effortlessly shift between a thousand voices on Saturday Night Live and The Simpsons. He is... Hartman. Bill Hartman. Correct. R.I.P. Sarah, bring us into our first score break. She can say incredibly racist things in her comedy, but somehow remain lovable. She is... Ooh. Sarah Silverman? Correct. Bring us into our first (laughs) score break. All right, scores, please. Well, it's a very close game. Mo has five points. Sarah has six points. I have eight points. All right. So, Mo, you are in the Equalizer Challenge Zone. This is how it works. I have in my hand a Trivial Pursuit TV box question from the mid-90s. I'm going to ask you all the questions from it. If you can get half of them right, you get four points. Double the points available on any one question. Here we go. Starting with the classics category. What weekday saw America almost shut down to watch the Milton Berle show starting in 1948? (laughs) One in seven chance. (laughs) <laughs> oh no, what a five chance. Gonna, the question was what weekday? It's going to be a tough one. I'm going to say Friday. Unfortunately, no. Tuesday. Tuesday. All right. Damn it. Sitcom category. What protective device did Allie find in her son's laundry on Kate and Allie? Uh, a... I don't know if device is the right word. Uh, the, the the cup that men wear to pl- 
Braves uh, baseball? <laughs> I don't know. No idea. A cup? Um, or a correct. condom? Yeah. Close. Right area. Yeah, a condom. All right. Drama. <sighs> drama. What series filmed more episodes? Star Trek or Star Trek The Next Generation? You should know Ooh. this. You love you love Next Generation. Yeah, okay, that's one. Kids and Games is your next category. What daytime TV rating did Family Feud earn in 1977? So what was this ranking it's asking? Oh, like number number X, whatever. Like yeah. Uh it was it the number 2 show in America? Mm, it was even better. No. Number 1. Okay, you got wow. two questions left. You need them both. This okay. is stars. The answer is usually a celebrity's name. What star rigidly prohibited smoking from the set of Dallas? Larry Hagman. Hey! One question. You get four points. It is the wild card category. What was the highest rated syndicated talk show in 1989? Syndicated talk show 1989. Oh, man. We're talking Uh, daytime talk shows. We're not talking nighttime. Syndicated talk show 1989. I'm trying to think of. When you hear the answer, if you don't get it, you will be mad at yourself. I'm just going to say. Oh, was it? uh, Oh, I'm so torn. Oprah Winfrey show? No. Correct. Yay! <laughs> I was almost going to say Maury, and if I had lost on Maury Povich, I would have really punched myself oh, in the face no. quite hard. And Maury. Yeah, yeah, I, yes. I, I thought it was like, it's either Oprah or Donahue. Okay. I was going to go Donahue. Our scores are now, Sarah has six, I have eight, Mo has nine. All right, Mo's ahead, and we're back to Mo for the regular questions. This super duo can make a cupcake bar successful somehow in New York. In 2015. Together, <laughs> they are... Can you read it again? I'm this sorry. This super duo can make a cupcake bar successful somehow in New York in 2015. Together, they are... Two broke girls. Correct. Tara. Yep. He's only a superhero when Tracy mispronounces his name, but his real superpower is secret knowledge, like the fact that people want food but don't need it. He, he is. Oh, no. Tracy uh, mispronounces his name. Yeah. I think it's Greg Grunberg's guy on Felicity, but I can't remember his name, so I don't know. I, I'm washing out. Well, do you want the hint? Okay, sure. Yeah. Remember the hints? Hint. This character was played by Chris Parnell. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Spachemin. Yes, Space Dr. Spaceman, as Tracy would say. Yes. Good for one point. Sarah D. Bunting. He can star in sitcoms, Aaron Sorkin projects, and Coen Brother movies, and no one ever asks him to lose weight. He is freshly unemployed. John Goodman? <laughs> John Goodman. <laughs> All right, Mo. Even in her 80s, she can compete on Dancing with the Stars and play a grandma on a bunch of sitcoms. She is. Is it Rita Moreno? Mm, nope. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars. I've just made a terrible mistake. Uh, the hint was, not that it's going to do any good for points. In the 50s, she was on Lassie. In the 90s, on Malcolm in the Middle. 
in the 2010s on Raising Hope. That is Cloris Leachman. Oh, oh yeah, Leachman. Yeah. Stupid. Tara. Oh. Yeah. He can keep his job without seeming to deliver the mail regularly. He is. Oh, he can shit. keep his job without seeming to deliver the mail regularly. He is. Hint. Played by Wayne Knight. New man. New man. Correct. Sarah Bunting. She can get all the dirt on the Upper East Side kids without anyone knowing who she is. She is. Gossip girl. Two points. Back to Mo. He can remain a complete drip even when smoking lots of pot in a period sitcom. He is. Oh. Uh, can I get a hint? From a 1998 to 2006 Fox sitcom. He is. Man, that ran for a long time. I should know this. Um, I'm going to tap out. I don't know it. Anybody know the answer? Foreman. Foreman. Eric Foreman. Correct. Arcade. Tar- That's a oh. 70s show. Tara. Yeah. They can try to make a turn to crime into some sort of women's empowerment show. They are. Good girls. Correct. Sarah. Despite being British and short. His range goes from a bored office worker to a murderous life insurance salesman in the upper Midwest. He is. Uh, can I hear the clue again? I'm sorry. Despite being British and short, his range goes from a bored office worker to a murderous life insurance salesman in the upper Midwest. Mm. He is. He is. Surely a name that I'm going to come up with or any moment ending in man. I don't I don't need a hint. I need the answer. Is the hint the answer? <laughs> it's probably not the answer. And it's not going to be the actor's name, is it? Because that's the answer. Shit. Uh, why don't I stall some more and take the hint? Can I have the hint? Also played <laughs> Watson in a recent TV I series. know that! Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I remember his name. Mm, I put you out of your misery. That's Martin Freeman. Oh, <laughs> oh poor. <laughs> okay, Mo. Space. They can wear long-sleeved, flowing clothes and stay comfortable even while layering in Miami. They are the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls. <laughs> All right. yep. Ironically, he's a sitcom straight man who happens to be gay. He is. Hint. Role in a recently revived NBC series. Oh, True Man. Will True Man. All right. Bring us into our second score break, Sarah. She can start with a manic pixie dream girl role on a sitcom, but maintain a constant TV presence for more than 20 years. She is... Hint. Most recently, she's been on Fear the Walking Dead. I don't know who that is. That is Jenna Elfman. Jenna oh. Elfman. All right, scores. She was on Fear the Walking Dead. She's on Fear yep. the Walking. 
A lot is happening right That's now. That's still on? I didn't. <laughs> Welcome wow. to Trump's America. Okay, Tara, <laughs> scores, please. All right. Um, well, Mo and I are tied with 13 points each. Sarah just behind with 10, but 10. she could pull ahead if she gets these four points. Oh. All right. Now you're in the Grossworth Equalizer Challenge Zone. Here are your questions, starting with classics. Good luck, Sarah. What? Thanks. What Donna Reed show, that's the show, Donna Reed show. What Donna Reed show regular advised? When you handle yourself, use your head. When you handle others, use your heart. Who said that? Um, Donna Reed. <laughs> 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 when in doubt, shit. go obvious. <laughs> sitcom. What popular sitcom alien loved rudeness and burping? Alf? Drama. What Miami Vice cop sagely noted, people in stucco houses should not throw quiche. Should not throw quiche? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, All right. The eggs, they get in all the nooks and crannies. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. What doesn't make sense is who, well, all right, sadly, I could actually name more than one Miami Vice cop. Let's go with Sonny Crockett. All right. So don't forget, if you get them all, you get double points. So this is like an eight point swing. I had not forgotten. Okay. Kids and games. What Hanna-Barbera duckling is protected by a bulldog named Chopper? I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. I've heard of it. Heard of it. What Hanna Barbera duckling? Yeah, duckling is protected by a bulldog named Chopper. Uh, I feel like I can picture this, yeah. but I I am just not going to get this. So let's guess Fuzzy. Uh, no, it is mm. Yaki Doodle. Yaki Doodle. Oh, okay. All right. In the interest yeah. of time, I'm just going to uh, move it uh, with the game. But all right, scores quickly, job, please, Tar. Well, now Mo and I still are tied with 13 points each, and Sarah is our better with 14. Okay. <laughs> Three questions for everybody left. So it's anybody's Ooh. game. Mo, here is yours. Okay. They can talk faster and mo- co- more coherently, ironic, than anyone in real life possibly Gilmore could and survive girls. in a twee town without murdering anyone. They are the. Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. All right. Two points. <laughs> Tara. Yep. He's behind basically every conspiracy ever. He shot JFK from the grassy knoll. He covered up Roswell. It doesn't make any sense, but roll with it because he is... Cigarette smoking man. Correct. Sarah Bunting. He can successfully transition from a kid's sitcom role to adult comedy roles where he generally plays a put-upon-every-man, sometimes alongside his sister. He is... He is, I don't know. Steel meal. Wait. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go hang ahead. on. She can ask for, no she steel has an meal. answer. She can get the hint, which you guys are not using and it's very disappointing. I retract. Hint, please. Recently uh, on a show called Arrested Development. Mm. <laughs> oh, wait, bait man. It took a while. Okay, no. we'll give you that one point. Mo. Thank you. Their tailored suits yeah. can make a can make period misogyny look good. They are the 
Wow. Their tailored suits can make period misogyny look good. They are the... Can I have a clue? AMC 2007-2015. I should know this. Probably. Um, period. Tailored suits. Misogyny. I should know this. AMC, why? Um... AMC show with tailored suits and jerks who <laughs> look good. And it's a period piece. That's I'm well yep. hung up. Okay. Um I'm blanking. I should know this. Steel meal. Yep. Mad men. Mad men. One point. Oh my god. <laughs> Way to go, Mo. I've just <laughs> Oh, very smart. When you're in the hot seat during game time, we have a little thing called brain fog. It happens. Yes. It does. It is me. Tara Ariano. Yes, sir. She can replace Melanie Griffith with Sandra Bullock and turn a pretty good movie into a terrible sitcom. She is... Working Girl. Working Girl. NBC oh. 1990. Sarah D. Bunting. He can solve crimes and withstand copious amounts of zither music in a TV series based on a classic 1949 film and Graham Greene novel. He is. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. We're digging deep back in time on this one, guys. I'll say um, I will need a hint. All right. This is BBC. And uh, 1949 to 1955, this ran. Graham Greene, classic 1949 film. Seems like it was uh, turned right away into a TV series. I don't know if this is right, but uh, I mean, what choice do I have? The Quiet Man? The Third Man. The The Third third Man! It all can't be easy. All right, everybody's last question coming up quickly, Tara. What are the scores? Okay. Super duper close. Mo has 15 points. Sarah has 16 points. I have 17 points. Okay. Oh, Mo. It's pretty cool. He can yeah. romance Linda Hamilton even while dressed like an extra from Cats. He is. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. Yes. Correct. Wow. Nice. She can take edgy comedy about immigration and assimilation. And dumb it down into racial stereotypes in order to please a sitcom audience. She is. Oh no. Hint. ABC 1994 to 1995. Fuck all American girl. That is good for one point. Sarah D. Bunting. So long as PAX, P-A-X, is around, she'll be saving us from minor medical maladies in the Old West. She (laughs) is. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Correct for two points. All right, let's hear the final scores. Uh, Well, we have a tie. Um, Mo finished with 17 points. Sarah and I are tied with 18 points. All right, so that means Sarah and Tara are heading into our tiebreaker. Hey. Are you ready? Yes. The (laughs) the tiebreaker (laughs) comes to you in the form of... A potato, 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 a pot
Hot potato. So, so Sarah is behind in the season standing. So we'll let Sarah go first. You must name superhero TV shows currently on the air. We're talking 2017, 2018 superhero TV shows. That doesn't necessarily mean all comic book TV shows are superhero oh, okay. TV shows. Keep that in mind. All right. All right. So, you know, I'll just save you the uh, embarrassment of saying Lucifer or iZombie. Because those are not superhero Okay, fair shows. enough. Okay. Also, if it's been canceled, it's not on the list. Looking at you in humans. Are we okay. ready? Yes. Sarah's going first. Go. 19 shows. Supergirl. Supergirl. Um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are still a going concern. Um, are we counting all TV as TV, like streaming services or, okay, uh, Luke Cage then? Uh, the, uh, Iron Fist, (laughs) the one no one likes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jessica Jones. Um, Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, good one. Uh... God, what is his goddamn name? Why can't I remember his name? <laughs> Ant Man. That's not my answer. My mind has emptied of capes and people who can well, punch really hard. We haven't even exhausted I, the Netflix shows yet, guys. I know. That's the one I she's trying to think of. I can't remember his name, so I'm out. Are you actually out? Yes, I'm out. I hate hot potato. I've been out. All right. Somebody's angry. Uh, You forgot about certain shows called Arrow, Black Lightning, Uh Daredevil, The Defenders, The Flash, The Gifted, Gotham, Krypton, Legion, The Punisher, Runaways, and even a little show called The Tick. The Tick. Oh, yeah. Runaways. All right. That means I I really only (laughs) forgot Daredevil, but congrats, Tara. Tara. Congratulations, Tara. Well, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We watched our four monthly free episodes of the New York Times doc, (laughs) Fourth Estate, before paying our respects to Tara's recently deceased DVR and going around the dial with stops at Jane the Virgin, Winona Earp, Killjoys, and Love Means Zeros. Mo made the successful case for one day at a time's not yet for the canon. We crowned winners and losers of the week and and was the winner of this week's game time, putting her in reach of the season victory next week. Remember. We're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano. There are other people. Sarah D. Bunting. You can't have a stroke to win an argument, Dave. And (laughs) Mo Ryan. I can't believe how badly I did in that game. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. I kept trying to leave, and then something emotional would happen, and then something even more emotional would happen. You guys are very emotional people. In Pittsburgh, it's Steel Town, Steel Hearts. This has been a production of the Previously.TV Podcast Network.